in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Chad Robinson. Hi, everybody. Excited to talk about some movies. All right. One of our best guests is back with us, Mr. Andrew Newman. How are you doing, sir? I'm fantastic. I uh, just got back from a extended vacation for about two weeks, so uh, I'm pumped, primed, and well rested, and you know, ready to uh, have a great podcast with you guys. Yeah, we needed some uh, West Coast representation for this podcast, so because this is a California movie. I, well, it, it's a Detroit and a California movie. You got to give Detroit its props in the beginning, but yes, it is primarily a California movie, and in fact, much of the Detroit scenes were actually filmed. Here in L.A. Yes. Yeah. But before we get into that, why don't we get to know Andrew just a little bit better? You probably know him pretty well by now. You know his voice. But, Andrew, we're going to ask you some tough questions here. You ready? Oh, I'm ready. What is your favorite on-screen couple? Dr. Evil and Frau Farbissima. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say Mini-Me. Uh, no, but I did have my uh, runner-up was uh, R2-D2 and C-3PO. Oh, that's I like right. that. Yeah, that's, 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 that's wonderful. Hey, Chad, you, you have done way more romance movies than Andrew and I have. I know you have. Uh, so <laughs> uh, after your extensive collection of uh, romance movies, who is your favorite on-screen couple? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, Tucker and Dale. Um, so, yeah, Tucker and Dale. Are they a couple? No. <laughs> As much That's as R two D two and C three PO, this is a fail. All right, well we're gonna go. Whoa, for... whoa, hold on, who's Tucker and Dale? I don't know who. We Tucker and Dale versus Evil. You've oh, upset Chad a... that you haven't seen this movie. It is a romantic comedy horror movie, and it is fantastic. It's mostly comedy. Alan Tudyk is involved. Two thousand ten, eleven, two thousand eleven. Okay, so that's probably like uh, I'll check it out. That sounds sounds interesting already. So, oh, fine. I will go with Dale and his love interest and from Tucker and Dale. Happy Russell. Oh, man. I, yeah, I don't know what to do with this. Okay. Well, <laughs> what is your favorite book to movie adaptation, Andrew? Uh, I went with uh, The Firm by John Grisham and then the uh, Tom Cruise version as the adaptation. Okay. And which one did you like better out of curiosity? Okay. So, uh, I've read almost, um, all the original John Grisham books probably like 30 times easy between high school and college when I was really bored in classes, I would just read books. So this isn't like something where I've just like read the book and then watched the movie. I have read the book. Given that, I think the movie does a fantastic job on the stuff they cut out while still keeping the, the plot there, the main ideas. That's really hard to do with a movie like that. So I almost have to give it to the movie just how hard it is to do an adaptation. But I love the book. What about you, Chad? What's your favorite movie to book? Sorry, book to movie adaptation. Fellowship of the Ring. That's another good choice. Uh, mine is Jurassic Park. 
I, I like the movie significantly more than I like the book. Oh, they made I disagree. They made a number of changes, and I, I liked it. So I love the movie too, but the books, the books up there. Uh, my runner-up would have been Starship Troopers. Okay. Mm. Because they take the different, they kind of have to take a little bit of a different lens, a little bit in some spots. But you realize that, again, it's really hard with a lot of books to do just a straight-out adaptation. I feel like that movie comes up a lot on this podcast, and I think it's only a matter of time before it happens. Just, uh, it's not a tease for, an, it's not inevitable, but I'm just saying, like, it feels like it's going to happen. If you do and you want me in, I'm down. <laughs> All right. And, uh, Andrew, what is the last movie you saw? So I was in uh, vacation on Las Vegas. Uh, my girlfriend was asleep, and I ended up watching uh, Fast and the Furious. Were you furious and fast as you watched it? You know, I really uh, remember I remember when that movie came out, and I was like, oh, this is just a ripoff of Point Break. Well, you know, it's a ripoff of Point Break. It's one hell of a ripoff of Point Break. Okay. Okay, so so it went down better for you this time, it sounds like. Oh, I no, no. I loved it the first time. I mean, but going into the movie five minutes in, I was like, this is a ripoff of Point Break. And even then I was like, well, it's one hell of a ripoff. It's one of the, it's just a great rewatchable movie. I mean, Vin Diesel and Paul Walker, they bring it. Okay. That movie has gone off the rails so much. They're like, Hey, Hey, hey. it is not shark jumping. It's building jumping. (laughs) Outrunning submarines for no good reason. Now, Chad, what's the last movie you saw? And I, I'm guessing it's a horror movie. It is. Uh, I told Russell this week I'm actually going through and making sure I check off one horror movie for every year since they've come out in 1895. So 1971's The Abominable Dr. Fives. I had not seen that. It's actually a whole lot of fun. Vincent Price. You know, you guys can uh, shame me if you want to, but I was always curious because of the weighted cast. And I, I checked out Valentine's Day from 2010 now oh no yeah i also checked it out in preparation because we're coming up on our uh, 2010 movies year and list so i've been uh, uploading myself on a couple of 2010 movies and this just happens to be the last one that i saw you gotta help me out here what are you talking about uh, it, it has like a loaded cast of uh, ashton kutcher and hathaway jennifer gardner oh, the... oh this isn't like a horror thing that i thought that that's the direct no this is you actually watched the valentine's day movie yeah yeah it's, it's yeah it's the valentine's Ooh. day movie by gary marshall so i mean it's pretty much love actually only no. in valentine's day oh that's insulting that it's pretty much the insulting. same movie so oh which is this we didn't we didn't need a remake of love actually love actually is a damn fine romantic movie in its own right thank you like, yeah that, I, I watch i want me and my girlfriend watch that every year i don't think i like that movie as much as you guys do so um then, I, well I, you know you had wrong views about infinity world so you don't <laughs> hold it against you yeah they they pulled this twice there's a new year's day with jessica beale and then there's valentine's day with jennifer garner and they're both equally terrible they are a love actually kind of in that same genre it just fails to Fails to hit the high points. I'm really confused how you're defending one and hating on the other. It's like you're all in or you're all out, I would think, on this stuff. So uh, that, I'm oh, confused. No. But we got we got another movie to talk about today. So <laughs> um, Also so, a romance in yes, the title. Yes, yeah. That was the thematic for this episode for sure. So, uh, Andrew, what movie is it we're doing today? We are doing 1993's True Romance. It grosses $12.2 million. It's not a lot of money, and unfortunately, it was made for a budget of $12.5 million. So it actually lost a little bit of money. So it comes in on the box office at 104 on the year. So it comes in behind Undercover Blues 
and one ahead of So I Married an Axe Murderer, which, oh, that's a good movie. I, I'm sad to see that that low. The same here. I love that movie. I think it's fantastic. And the number one movie that year, we were just speaking about this one, is Jurassic Park. So that is this is the year of Jurassic Park. IMDb gives True Romance a 7.9. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 93%, and the audience score gives it a 93% as well. No awards to take home, and, uh, you know, some mixed reviews. Some fan, some some critics kind of liked it. Ebert gives it 3 out of 4 stars. Leonard Moulton gives it 2.5 out of 4 stars. So there, some of the head critics were a little bit more in the middle. And it stars Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette, Dennis Hopper, Val Kilmer, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt, Christopher Walken, Bronson Pinchot, and it's just got a deep cast. Michael Rapaport, James Gandolfini... It's gonna. We're gonna talk about a lot of names as we get into the cast, but it's a weighty, weighty cast. So, Andrew, had you seen True Romance before? If so, what was your background with it? Uh, yes, I watched this movie in college in the early two thousands. I actually had a uh, Mr. Blonde poster from Reservoir Dogs of uh, Are you gonna dark bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? And a friend of mine goes, Oh you've seen a True Romance, and I'm like, I look at him sideways, and I'm like, What are you talking about? And he goes. True Romance. It was written by Tarantino also. And I was like, okay, but it wasn't directed by him. He goes, no, it's directed by the guy that did Top Gun, which at that point probably still is my favorite movie of all time. So I went into uh, True Romance pretty excited to watch it back in college. I did. And uh, I think about six months later is when the director's came out. So I bought that and I probably watched the movie once or twice a year ever since. Okay. So you love this movie then? Oh yeah. This is an amazing movie. Uh, the main reason why I keep watching uh, the re- main reason why I keep rewatching it is not just because of the joy, but typically because I will run into somebody who has never seen it, and I go, "Okay, we got to watch this movie." I tell them a little bit, and they're like, "Oh, you want to watch it with me since you love it so much?" And I go, "Sure." So that's you know that's part of the reason why I watch it so much. But yes, it's aging great for me. Now, Chad, had you seen True Romance before? I had not. To take a peek behind the curtain here. So we get a short list of movies uh, that we'll all talk about and we'll we'll pick. And uh, I did no research on this. I am not a Quentin Tarantino fan, although stunningly, I think I'm like too short of his entire library (laughs) at this point. It's amazing how I keep running into his movies. And this, as Andrew mentioned, was written by Quentin Tarantino. So I saw that name and I said, oh no, (laughs) in the credits, in the opening credits and uh, kind of held my breath of like, okay, is this going to go down like Kill Bill for me or is this going to go down like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Um, Mercifully, it's not nearly as long as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think that's one of his better ones, but uh, okay, complete your your, uh, cycle on this one. So I'm detecting some hesitancy. Uh, How did this one go down for you? It's, it's a mixed bag. It, it has the usual issues for me. Uh, Quentin Tarantino writes very vulgar, almost dislikable characters, and he likes filling his movies with dislikable characters. And that's tough for me. I, I kind of want one really dislikable person, like uh, Inglorious Bastards. I, I loved that cast. Uh, and you had Christoph Waltz, who was dislikable, but great character. Uh, this one, this one was the opposite. The protagonists were mostly dislikable. And I'm going to be, I'm going to probably cut down the middle of this one. I actually watched this one twice. And the first time I watched it, I actually came away with pretty negative side of things. And I think, I think I was taken aback by the violence and I'll talk more about that later. 
and I, I went back through it a second time and I studied it and I was watching some of the videos and then I started to really appreciate a lot of the things that this movie does differently than most Hollywood movies in terms of how the characters are made. And the characters are very well constructed. It's very well cast. And uh, upon a second watch, some of the things that rubbed me the wrong way didn't hit me with such a visceral reaction the second time around. And I could appreciate the subtleties, the details, and a lot of parts of why this is so like. This is a cult classic, and I'm, I, I get it. There's some mixed feelings in there for me, but I think I'm going to be a lot more positive as we go through this than Chad. <laughs> so uh, we should probably just give a little bit of a warning that this movie does, as most Tarantino scripts do, contain language that I don't think any of us uh, have any desire to repeat on this show. So when it comes to any specific scenes that involve that, we will just, I'm assuming, reference them as opposed to quote in any way, shape or form. And is definitely not something that I would recommend for children. And if you've got teenagers, watch it with your kid and talk about it as opposed to just being like, oh, yeah, watch that. <laughs> we're, we're just going to record that for future disclaimers anytime Tarantino comes up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In fairness, this is the one of his movies that has his name on it that has the fewest N-words used in the movie, probably. Really? Yes, but one of its most offensive scenes, one of the most oh. famous, but also offensive in that way, scenes does revolve around that concept. 100%. 100%. Uh, but I mean... <laughs> It, it may set the record for Italian slurs. Oh, I was going to say that they, they, they've managed to offend people no matter how you go about it. So, um, all right, though, we're going to spoil True Romance. So if you haven't seen it before, you're going to want to go check it out. Otherwise, we will be back after these messages. Do you love sci-fi, horror, and fantasy films? Then grab a badge for Otherworlds Film Festival, the country's premier sci-fi film festival. There will be Q&As, panels, parties, and mixers. Rub elbows with up-and-coming and established filmmakers, as well as like-minded filmgoers. Come celebrate our seventh year, December 3rd through 6th, at the Galaxy Highland in Austin, Texas. Badges are now for sale at otherworldsfilmfest.com. That's otherworldsfilmfest.com. Okay, we're back, and Chad, do you want to give people a refresher on the movie True Romance from 1993? Christian Slater plays an Elvis-loving loser named Clarence Worley. Clarence is approached by Alabama, not the band or the state, but a woman played by Patricia Arquette, who apparently is up for watching three straight kung fu movies in a movie theater. He probably should have suspected something was up, but instead considers it serendipity to meet the perfect woman. Well, it turned out she was a hooker, but she falls in love with Clarence anyway. Clarence, throughout this movie, is visited by an apparition that resembles Elvis Presley, and the spirit convinces Clarence to kill Alabama's pimp. He then takes what he believes to be Alabama's belongings from the brothel, but instead winds up with a huge amount of coke. Man, I hate when that happens. <laughs> Not knowing where to turn, Clarence contacts his estranged father, played by Dennis Hopper, for help. The mob is hot on Clarence's heels as it's their turn, their money he's stolen, and they kill his father after Clarence and Alabama leave for Los Angeles on their honeymoon. A friend of Clarence's introduces him to Elliot Blitzer, an actor who agrees to broker a sale of the drugs to a film producer. Alabama is attacked by one of the mobsters in their hotel room, and after a brutal fight, emerges from the room as the last person standing. Meanwhile, Elliot is pulled over for speeding and arrested for possession, and in order to avoid jail time, agrees to wear a wire for the deal between Clarence and the producer. The mob also tracks down Clarence, 
uh, to the hotel where the deal is going down, and a three-way standoff ensues between the police, the producers' heavily armed guards, and the mob with, with Clarence and company stuck in between. Nearly all parties are killed in the gunfight, which nearly costs Clarence his life as well. He and Alabama manage to escape, and they flee to Mexico, where Alabama gives birth to their son, whom they named Elvis. Thank you very much. She makes explicitly clear she's a call girl, not a hooker. It's true. There's a difference. Although it felt like she wasn't the high-end call girl that she was claiming to be. Do call girls have pimps? Madams, right? Yeah, I think they do. Or did I answer that question a little too fast? (laughs) (laughs) Andrew's like, in the question, Andrew's like, yes. (laughs) He just got back from a trip in Vegas, so he knows the answer to this very well now. (laughs) It's legal there. Uh, Yeah, I know. Oh, no, 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 not in Clark County. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, right outside. (laughs) Damn, I knew that too fast. (laughs) You know all this information. Okay. (laughs) One of the things I want to get into is I think one of the things that maybe threw me off of the first time, because I mentioned I didn't have a good time with it the first time, was I wasn't sure what to expect. Now, Andrew, if you're trying to tell somebody what does this movie fit into, is it a dark comedy? Is it an action? Is it a drama? I mean... Help help break somebody down. Like, what is it they're getting in for when you say, like, this is this is the kind of movie it is. Will you like it or not? It is a romance movie at its core. And it's a romance movie taking place in the middle of a basically a mafia action movie. Because that's the type of, you know, action that's going on. Right. Is it's basically a mafia action movie with a romance story being what's actually going on. And the great part about it is that the characters do have flaws. They're not perfect people. They just weirdly get thrust into this. They've got flaws there. Things have gone on in their life that there's this is a chance that that they have a higher likelihood than, say, the rest of us of ending up in a situation where they're actually dealing, you know, with the mafia and have a suitcase full of cocaine. Yeah. And it's and it's not just the main two characters. I mean, through and through. Pretty much everybody's unconventional for the most part. I mean, maybe Dennis Hopper's character seems pretty normal, but I mean... Does he? Does he not? But he's throwing around the N-word and Italian slurs all over the place. Did he name his dog Rommel? Was that the name I caught? Yes, I believe, I believe okay. that is correct. So yeah, he named names dog after a Nazi. Like, this is not normal. Also, if I remember correctly... Uh... Right before the uh, Sicilian scene, his dog actually uh, goes off chasing another f- a female dog. So just an interesting point to note as, the, as opposed to him being protected in that situation. The, the, like right before, like he calls after his dog and the dog chases off after another dog. So who do you feel is the most normal character, Chad? Michael Rappaport's Dick Ritchie. Yeah. I, I felt like he was kind of the normal loser. Like he was the one we were supposed to cling to. Okay. He's along for the ride, kind of the awkward, naive guy. This does feel like a Tarantino movie in some ways, but in other ways it doesn't. Andrew, th- these colorful set of characters. Let's talk about that for a minute. Do you like these characters? Because like a Tarantino movie, he's going to embellish and give you a lot of development about a full host of characters. And that's one of the things I do like about his work. Yes, I I appreciate that the characters don't seem like they're just there. Like, they've got their own world that they partake in, and this is the five minutes in which you get to see them in this world. 
even if it's only five minutes, there's a backstory like they they exist. For example, James Gandolfini's character, when he has the speech with Patricia Arquette about like the first time of killing somebody. Oh, yeah. And like that gives him like I'm not saying it's something obviously I don't advocate going around killing people, particularly for the mafia or any in any way. But it gives his character a backstory. Right. There's depth here. We know this isn't like the first time he's done it. And he's talking about the emotional difficulties of killing people, something very real, if you do that kind of thing. So, I mean, like Andrew said, I think this is a romance movie at its core, which is usually a secondary genre. But in here, it's more up front and center and central to the plot. What did you think about the relationship between Alabama and Clarence? It was a bit too fast, in my opinion. Like, It, it was kind of weird how quickly Alabama turned around from... Oh, I was sent by a friend for your birthday to, oh, I'm in love with you. It was just, it was so strange. And Clarence was not exactly helping himself. You know, he's uttering lines like, want to see what Spider-Man number one looks like? That is a pickup line that has never in the history of mankind worked. It worked. I know. (laughs) But what's working there is that she's appreciating his passion. Yes. Right? It's not that she's like, oh, you know, like, oh, I absolutely love Spider-Man. Also, it's, oh, I'm smart enough to know that this is something rare, right? Spider-Man number one is something rare, agreed. And he's really passionate about it. So if, you know, in the same context, if when all of us were in college and, you know, met a girl that was in orchestra or something and she's like, oh, do you want to see a Stravinsky? You know, like we'd we'd all be like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I Show me that because it'd be interesting, and there's something they're passionate about. So I think you got to give a little more credit to him in the Spider-Man pickup line there. <laughs> I'm going to defend that, my boy Clarence Worley pretty strongly here, Chad. So that and the two two Street Fighter movies uh, on the billboard, the, the Kung Fu movies weren't Street Fighter, were they? Um, I I thought it was Street Fighter, The Return of Street or Street Fighter Returns, and yeah, was it not Andrew? Oh, yeah, it? yeah, it was okay. all the Street Fighter movies. Yeah, yeah. Street okay. Fighter, the uh, Street Fighter Two, and The Return of Street Fighter, right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't look it up. I assume they're not real movies. I but bet it is. What? Tarantino. What? 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 You know, you, you oh my God, you guys have not seen any Sonny Chiba movies? Yeah. See, I was gonna say Tarantino loves to bring oh. up things that are important to him. So I actually oh. put money on those actually being real oh. movies. So okay, oh. so clearly what was going to happen soon. It's been a real long time since I've watched all these, but I have seen at least Street Fighter like a couple times. Um, we will. Uh, I will go through. I'll, we go through and make sure you guys watch, even if it's, you don't do the podcast. You need to watch some Sunny Chiba. Like See, you're just missing something important in the, in in the history of cinema. You're missing something if you haven't seen any Sunny Chiba. If we announce a Street Fighter movie, people are going to expect the Raw Julia, Jean-Claude Van Damme one, which this was 1992, 1993 was about the time the video game came out. So it's like, oh, that's that's poor timing for that title. Ah, maybe it's maybe it helps bring it back. I don't know. But now, Andrew, hopping over to you. I mean, this is a similar question. Break down the romance or the relationship between Clarence and Alabama for you. I think the thing that I appreciate about it is that they so quickly when they have their connection are like okay if we're going to be with each other like we're going to really try this isn't half measures let's wait a while this is we're going to both jump in with both feet and go for it and they really do they immediately obviously christian slater does going over to see drexel 
you know, in terms of his part of really jumping in, I'm not sure that I think it was the wisest move. Personally, I would think that had they just gone to see Dennis Hopper, gotten a couple hundred bucks and left town without engaging with a murderous pimp, would have been a better choice. But I appreciate the commitment. It, that, that was far more romantic, as she's put it. It, it was. And I, oh, the other thing I want to say about the romance aspect is them going to get a piece of pie. I think that's like an underrated aspect. She didn't go have sex with him after she's already been paid for it immediately. She watches the movies, which, okay, so maybe she needs to watch the movies to be certain he's going to like go along with this. Doubtful, but I could see why after maybe only three days, she's maybe a little, a touch naive here. But no, she wants to go and have pie with him and eat first. Just saying that, like, there, even though she was paid for it, there's definitely more of a connection there than you are going, than you would normally see, I would think. In my notes, when we're first introduced to her, it's like, she is awful and I can't stand her. Because she, she barges in the movie. She's like, mind if I smoke? I hate cell phones. So I can't imagine smoking. And this was a different time. But then she's bothering Christian Slater, who she's not with, of mind filling me in with what I missed. It's like, I... I would walk out or walk away from this chick. Not if a pretty girl asks. No way. Uh, yeah, you you underestimate my annoyance with people. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, well, at the at the bright side, Chad's wife knows he's never leaving her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and she knows not to talk during the movie. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Or smoke. Uh, yeah, I mean, Andrew, I think you touched on some things. And I mean, upon digging into it a little bit more, when we meet Clarence, he's incredibly honest. Like, he's unabashedly honest. He he misses a chance with a woman in the opening scene just because he's straightforward. He leads with these weird facts. He's not ashamed. He's, he's a comic book loving, movie junkie, super Elvis fan, maybe so much so that, uh, you know, he's attracted to him and... You know, he, he just puts it all out there and he doesn't hold back. That's who he is. And he gets shut down for it. And it's not it's not working with the ladies, but, you know, he's open to being with somebody and you see that. And so when Patricia Arquette comes along, who is Alabama's character, I found myself even looking over to Mary the first time saying, like, something seems weird here. Girls just don't approach guys in the theater like that. Right. Oh, you know, I mean, she's really into him. Like, maybe I'm not seeing this. This guy doesn't seem like he's the guy that you're just trying to, like, hitch your wagon to necessarily right away. But then she wants to go eat pie with him and then, you know, go to the comic book store. And it's all working. And you are sitting there going like this. This doesn't happen. Other, you know, this does this doesn't happen. And you're right. I mean, it all made sense because it was too good to be true. What you said was they formed a connection. And that that was interesting to me. Most movies just take opposites attract. And like people who don't get along at all, like think Catherine Heigl and Seth Rogen and the movie Knocked Up, where probably these two people shouldn't be together. They have nothing in common and they go through these huge fights. And in the end, opposites attract. And that's a very, very common template for a Hollywood movie. But this this is actually how relationships work and i found myself even thinking even though these people are way crazy this is more like a genuine relationship it reminded me of my wife and i sitting there eating over a meal long after everybody else is gone and you're talking about common interests and so those common interests while not really important to the relationship itself they create an opportunity for connection and they form a real connection and that that shows through so well in this movie this movie starts off with all the warm fuzzies 
you know, and she's a bad, unabashedly honest too. She comes clean right away and it doesn't send him running because he himself is that straightforward, all in, honest person. And you're right, these people are weird, they're crazy, but they're both all in, all the time, full committed, and that's why they get married and they don't waver. She says, I'll never lie to you. She doesn't. He says that, you know, don't break my heart because I'm going to be all in on this. I can't take that. And he is. They're, they're there for each other under extreme circumstances. I agree 100%. I read an interview with Tarantino back like mid-2000s, uh, right out, like two years after I'd gotten director's cut and watched and by the way, totally recommend the director's cut. We won't get into any of that stuff now. But if you enjoy the movie, get the director's cut. It's great. One of the things that he said was, somebody asked him, are you ever going to make a romance movie? And he said, I already did. I wrote True Romance. And it really made me, you know, there's so much to enjoy about this movie, in my opinion, that I didn't at the time. I don't think I spent as much focus initially on thinking about that. But now for years, I've really enjoyed that aspect of the characters. And then specifically Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette, I think they both just nail their roles absolutely in this. What's weird is these two individuals are both crazy. Like they're both have a ton of baggage, but their relationship's actually quite healthy when you think about it. They support each other. They're a team. They sacrifice for each other. They go through tough situations knowing that the other person has their best interest in mind. They are fully committed and very loyal to each other and they truly make each other happy and the other people who come into contact with them they're all unhappy people but they are happier when they're around them it's something that's a detail i just didn't notice until i watched it the next time around of like holy cow like as weird as these two people are i mean you shouldn't just go off and murder somebody you're a broken individual if you think that and similarly alabama has some issues of her own but together they make themselves a higher form of each other Neither one of them really just go off and murder people and think that in each situation you can make a very reasonable claim of self-defense in all of the situations in which they uh, initially pull fire. Yeah, I mean, he he was planning on killing Drexel, which Gary Oldman, chameleon, but... Uh... Okay, can we... T yeah, we got to kind of talk about Drexel, like, right, that does needs... Is it White Boy Day? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, so many jokes there. <laughs> okay, so one of the things that I love about this whole short scene with Gary Oldman, uh, Gary Oldman plays, I believe the term is a wigger pimp, and he definitely, his character definitely does not believe that he is white, but we all have seen Gary Oldman. He's not wearing blackface. He's still white, and he just talks as if he is not. One of the best things that I read about it is that when they were doing the filming. Gary Oldman goes outside of his trailer and he comes upon a group of African-American teenagers and asks them to read his lines and say, like, is this like, is this genuine? Would he actually say this? Well, they turn the line of titties into brecesses and he goes, he wouldn't say that. And then Quentin Tarantino later explained, yeah, that's because he was like there when this happened. And they left it, obviously, in the movie. And I think the whole line runs great. But they were screwing with Gary Oldman because he's British. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw he wanted to do a spinoff with Drexel, too, which would be an awful movie. He was a despicable character. But 
that would be amazing. Like five minutes of that was so entertaining. And particularly the scene before with Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, see, I, that was a very Quentin Tarantino scene, and I did not enjoy any part of it. The various things that they would eat as far as body parts of women, I think is the best way I can phrase that. Okay. I mean, it was a, it, it's Sam Jackson and it's Tarantino. I mean, and to your point though, Chad, I mean, I think you're drifting into, this is a movie that has a lot of vulgar speech, a lot of roughness, abrasiveness, and a lot of the critics at the time did say they took it too far. And I'm assuming at the undertone, I'm, I'm, I'm searching for the parts that didn't work for you. Is that what's not working for you mainly, or is it just the dislikable characters? Uh, it's a little from column A, a little from column B. So today I'll be playing the part of the 70-year-old pearl-clutching woman. Okay, uh, can we just call you Karen? No, no, I am not complaining to anyone's manager. Although the manager in this case was Harvey Weinstein, so I don't know that's going to do any good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, a, it's a very violent movie, and I myself had a hard time with some scenes. Because, I mean, the Drexel scene is pretty rough, maybe rougher than I would have signed up for to get the excitement across. I don't know. It passes the point of being exciting. Dressel's super threatening. Like, you're scared for Clarence in that scene. And then later, oh, man, I, I think the, unfortunately, sometimes a really great movie sometimes will kind of scar you a little bit. And the scene where James Gandolfini, who plays Virgil, mm. the mob enforcer, whew, when he's beating on Alabama, it it's... It's so hard to watch. And Tony Scott, the director, said it was important that it be so difficult for her because it shows you how extreme she is to flip him off and to just say that you're not getting anything out of me. She stands by her man, even though she's in this horrible situation that was very likely cost her her life. And right to the very end, she's all in, like she said. And she's protecting the man she loves. On the other hand, man, they sure took it so far that scene is really hard for me to watch yeah you have upbeat music throughout the entire movie and then that scene there's just very somber muted music so you just have to deal with that entire scene but i will say that scene kind of turned it for me with alabama like i i gained a lot of respect for her character as horrible as that scene was i'm like all right all right, there's uh, there's redemption here. She's more than just annoying. <laughs> no, I mean, she's quite admirable in that she lies to really try and get out of the situation to try and protect them. I mean, she wins. Ultimately, she's resourceful and she goes into survival mode. And I mean, just by simply laughing at Vince and making him go check himself in the mirror, you know, I mean, that turned the whole tables around. And her confidence, which comes from her love made all that possible and that carried her through the hardest event that i hope she ever faces <laughs> yeah i mean up and up until then one of her last scenes was she was making out with clarence's dad as they left i'm like that's a weird thing to do and it was a weird thing to the dad to be like okay let's go with this they had the scenes where uh they uh, first met up with dick ritchie right because yeah yeah to introduce floyd uh brad pitt <laughs> Uh, so let's shift into the cast here, because this is a very impressive cast. We've got four Oscar winners, Brad Pitt, Christopher Walken, Patricia Arquette, and Gary Oldman, and an additional two Oscar nominees with Hopper and uh, Sam Jackson in there. Loaded cast. Andrew, as as an ensemble, how is this cast for you? I have argued that it is easily one of the top five ensemble casts of all time, and I 
think that when any of that discussion in the top five, it has a chance at the number one shot. We get Bronson Pinchot doing some actual heavy lifting in the middle of this movie, moving some stuff along. And this is right after he's coming off the perfect strangers, you know, stuff like just the depth everywhere. The casting lady. Oh yeah. Berta. Yeah. Berta, Berta from two and a half men. Yeah. Yeah. The cast is phenomenal, but I would honestly say that getting James Gandolfini at that spot before he's Tony Soprano and him doing like, don't you kind of feel like a little bit that essentially like Tony Soprano then just left, like he didn't actually get killed by her. And then he just, you know, met, went to New Jersey. I have a feeling this role, I haven't seen anything in specific, but I have a very strong feeling this role helped him get the role that he would later get. And that, that mob leader of Tony Soprano. I, I could be wrong, but it, it's hard to overlook. So I feel like we kind of got to talk about Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper if we're, as when we're on the mafia. Here. Absolutely. Well, to talk about it, it's called the Sicilian scene. Dennis Hopper knows that Christopher Walken is the head of, or, you know, the second in command for the mafia who are after Christian Slater. And he knows he's probably going to die no matter what. So rather than get tortured and potentially give something up, he tries to incentivize Christopher Walken into killing him right away by making insults about the heritage of Sicilian people as to why they have darker hair than people from other parts of Italy. And the scene, the acting chops between them is just, it's, it's watching two experts at their craft go at each other. And uh, some of the most famous lines in there actually uh, are um, ad-libbed. They were not part of the original script. I agree. It's uh, an amazing job from two powerhouse actors, and their chemistry together is uh, palpable. It's just it, it's it's commanding. Uh, you know, it it's almost takes on its own life of its own movie right there in that scene. That was the scene that kind of turned it around for me as far as this movie goes. I was not having the greatest of time up to that point, and I was mesmerized watching the two of them just kind of playing chess of are you going to give something up before i kill you or am i just going to have to kill you yeah and the presence that hopper like i think andrew said it like when he when he asked for that last cigarette he knows he knows that he's going to go out but he's going to go out spitting in their face he's going to go out with dignity is, is really a better way of putting it and he's not going to be the one who gives them what they want even though he they may get what they want anyway but he's not going to you know he has that integrity uh, it's a powerful thing, and he he does a heck of a job. You know that that's uh, that's quite a middle finger back to them in their faces, and he's uh, he's brave, and he's he has a lot of confidence in that scene. And uh, honestly, Christopher Walken's laughter it, it builds the tension. They're doing this thing, and they seem like they're having a good time, but you know, at the end, he's steaming inside. <laughs> yeah, he hadn't killed someone since 1983 or something Four. like that. Yeah. 83 doesn't sound as good when Christopher Walken says it. 1984. <laughs> uh, then I just imagine him after that doing uh, the dance video that he did, you know, the music video. Yeah. <laughs> just swinging along, dancing. He's like, oh, I killed somebody doing the Christopher Walken swing dance. I just am amazed that you get such great actors playing such small parts. Now, 
Samuel L. Jackson was not a household name by any means at this point, so his tiny role is one thing. But, I mean, you know, Brad Pitt was emerging, and to get such a small role, he actually went out to be Clarence, and in the end he didn't get it. And, you know, they were talking about where he could fit in, and he said, I want to be... I want to be Floyd. And Tony Scott was like, really? That's a pretty small role. And he's like, no, no, no. I know. I know this character. I know Floyd and I want to do this. And so the enthusiasm for the script really seemed to land a lot of talented people into this. Val Kilmer's not even, you don't even see his face. What is he? 30 built? He's built. He's built. Actually, he's built. Oh, fourth. Well, that's higher than yeah. you would think. But um, <laughs> still. Not off of Top Gun, it wasn't. Yeah, he's not on. He's not even on screen. That's a big time actor. That's what's amazing that it did so poorly. Uh, part of the reason I think they didn't market it very well is it's amazing that it did so poorly because Christian Slater at this time has actually been in the middle of a fairly decent run and is kind of killing it. Heathers, Cuffs, he does Broken Arrow uh, in two years after this, I think two or three years after this with um, John Travolta. Pump up the volume, was that around this time? I think that might have been one year before that. I'm not certain. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie, so don't quote me on that. But he's also in an interview with a vampire. My point is, is like Slater's kind of killing it. Then you've got all these people that we all know so well. Tony Scott's been on an amazing run, if you go look at what he's done at this point. And the movie just doesn't really do anything. I like. I mean, I was I was at the prime age of watching this, but when this came out, and I'd never heard of it. Like, I was 12 years old when this came out. My parents had started letting me watch radar movies when I was eight. So I had an older brother who was 15. So we would have definitely been all over this if we had known about it. Talking about a little bit of alternate castings here, Drew Barrymore was apparently the first choice for Alabama. Now, she wasn't available, and I'm, I'm a little bit glad because Drew's just too sweet for this role there needs to be a little bit of darkness in this character and at the same time and i'm glad that she didn't get it but i mean other people brooke shields badly wanted to do the part the other people were juliette lewis and she was considered oddly enough uh, she goes on to be in natural born killers which there's I'll, I'll come back to why that's significant later uma therma uh is in consideration and jennifer jason lee i mean there's a lot of people that they considered before they got to Patricia Arquette. But at the end, Patricia Arquette stood out. She had won, I guess, an Emmy with some of her work. And Tony Scott ended up going with her. He liked that. And she said he said she had a petite, angelic, delicate innocence to her. But there was some strength in her at the same time. That was a quality he really liked in her. And it's, in, it's really impressive when you get all those big actors and stuff. They got it right on that, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, Drew Barrymore... I, I just can't see that one. I know they said that, that was the first choice. Even when she's in a meaner role like Santa Clarita, she's still kind of sweet while she's murdering people. So, yeah, I Patricia Arquette was clearly the right choice. Yeah, I, I have to agree there because there's the Drew Barrymore one where she's like genuinely not OK in the head. She does a great job in the movie. I don't know what it's called because a girl friend back in the day made me watch it. But for her to see, not seem sweet, she kind of had to seem crazy. And I know you're talking, you keep using the word these people are crazy, but they're not psychotic in the way that we think of. Like, it's that they've chosen to live life with a lot more risk than any of us take. Whereas Drew, 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 Drew Barrymore is actually like, she needs in that movie, she actually, to, for her to pull that off, and that was the role, but she actually looked like she belonged in the mental hospital. You know, and that's not at all Alabama's character. 
you know, shh, like she just maybe, you know, doesn't belong at the PTA meetings. <laughs> fun, fun game of association. So Patricia Arquette is in this with Christian Slater, who is like super Elvis fan. And she ends up marrying Nicolas Cage, who's a out there as a super huge Elvis fan. And Cage later ends up divorcing her and then marrying Lisa Marie Presley, Elvis's daughter. In the movie, she smashes James Gandolfini's head with a bust of Elvis's head. So it all comes full circle here. This cast, once you've seen it, it's almost unfair to play six degrees of Kevin Bacon. You almost need to cut it down to four. <laughs> Yes. You were talking about Oldman and how, what a wild time it was. And he said that he wanted to do his own uh, Drexel movie. And he, he had said that in 2011, so this is going back a fair bit, at least at that point in time, the AFI was interviewing him. Uh, and he said that they his favorite role was probably a tie. He enjoyed playing Lee Harvey Oswald and JFK, as well as Drexel Spivey here in this movie, the most of all of his roles. And I mean, that's pretty cool because as Chad pointed out, Gary Oldman's quite a chameleon, and he's made some commanding, awesome uh, performances over the years, and this is one of his favorites. Yeah, I mean, serious black. He's a heck of a Jim Gordon, and honestly, my my personal favorite is from The Fifth Element. I just, I, yes. I love him in that, so. I did think of that when the letter that he puts on his desk is empty. He's like, I think this is the appropriate amount of money to make sure you never follow us down ever again. And he's like, it's empty. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> That's such a That's such a Western cowboy thing to do. Oh, yeah, it's great. And the, that's the thing is, like, I think Christian Slater's a little underrated as an actor, but what I think's great is the way that Gary Oldman, who's a heavyweight, you know, he's a champion actor, he makes Christian Slater look good in this scene. While he's obviously stealing the scene, it's not like I'm watching it going, wow, Christian Slater sucks as an actor. I'm going, wow, everybody in this scene, even Drexel's, what's the name of Drexel's? Huge ass buddy, Gary Old, like that whole scene is is just excellent. He's scary. I think that's one of the things that makes Gary Oldman such a great actor. He's not trying to only have the camera on him. He's trying to get everybody involved so that they all look great. You're right. And you know, when they called and told him about the part he read about, he he read it and he thought this was a really colorful character. He's like, yeah, I'm I'm in. I'm doing this. Uh, so he was full go. And then Tony called him later and said, you know, he had some ideas for what the character might be like to help him. And then Oldman kind of listened, but then he's like, well, I'm thinking about going with this other direction. And he talked about a guy that he knew from uh, Romeo and Juliet production that he was on. It was a white Rasta. He said that he had this weird accent and, you know, I want to give him like a messed up eye. And Tony's just listening on the phone at all these big out there decisions as an actor. And they are Gary, they're Gary Oldman making these decisions. And Tony trusted him and it's like, sure. Okay, I'm gonna need to see this. I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not. I, I don't know that that's a good idea. And obviously, when he got there in person, got with wardrobe, did the thing, and wow, his face with that lamp is gonna be another one of those lasting images from this movie. Yeah, I think that which what's so hard is he's in the movie so little, but because it sets up everything that happens. And he packed so much power in those few minutes that it would be easy to spend an hour and a half just talking about Drexel, even though he's got, what, 12 minutes of screen time, maybe? Maybe. And then another fun recasting, alternate casting, is Liam Neeson turns down the role of Vincenzo. And Michael Madsen was another consideration for it as well before Christopher Walken goes on to take it. And I'm really glad none of those other things panned out. Also, I can't see Liam Neeson playing a Sicilian Italian. 
Yeah, I agree. <laughs> One other casting thing that I wanted to just touch on is this, the the little boy at the end of the on the beach. That is Patricia Arquette's actual son. So he's a four he's four yeah. years old in this movie. So that's pretty cool. Uh, how are you How are you ignoring the Steve Buscemi part? Yeah, Harvey Weinstein thought that uh, Christian Slater was too good looking to play Clarence and told Warner Brothers he wanted someone like Steve Buscemi. So Warner Brothers fired him. <laughs> and Harvey went up to Quentin Tarantino and said they're going to be partners and not associate with Warner Brothers after this film. Well, they're not associating with him now, so. Yeah, yeah, but uh, Steve Buscemi would have been, that would have been a pretty wild movie. He could have done it, but. You know, it's how they're going to take it, right? Can we agree that the aspect of Tarantino writing the words for Drexel, it, clearly he did a great job. Yeah, right. But then... It's how does Gary Oldman take it? And quite frankly, Tarantino didn't have much control. And in a way, neither did Tony Scott, because it sounds like Gary Oldman was pretty much like, F you, this is what I'm going to do because I know what I can do. And so it's only it takes all the parts working together for that final product of what you're going to get, because, oh, my gosh, like Steve Buscemi can I'm picturing him from uh, Con Air right now as that Steve Buscemi uh, in in true romance and i'm really having a hard time seeing patricia arquette's character pulling off the uh i want to get with you scenes yeah. with steve buscemi yeah I've, I've got airheads he needs to have some attraction to him i think you know isn't that part of the thing as to why like it kind of makes it believable is because here's this very attractive female but she's clearly like she probably it seems like she's already had some difficult things in life so that would explain why she's gotten to where she is and here's this better than average looking dude, but because he lacks certain aspects of social skills in terms of we don't, a lot of times people don't view in the dating world being that straightforward and honest the way he is as being a positive, right? So he's viewed as kind of a loser and he likes what he likes, comic books and hanging out. He doesn't care about pleasing other people, but clearly he's a good looking guy and she's a good looking girl. So it makes sense that why they could have some attraction in that aspect of where they ended up. Whereas, I, no offense to Steve Buscemi, love him as an actor, but that's just not how most people would categorize him. No, you're right. And yeah. Slater's got confidence. He's overbrimming with confidence. And I think that's an He's important He's so cool. Of, yeah, he is. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's, this role demands that. I'm with you. I think Slater was the right man for the right job. And, you know, when, anytime you say, uh, you know, Brad Pitt's going out for the job, I'm a, bit, I'm a Brad Pitt fan. And I would have normally said, yeah, give me Brad Pitt over Christian Slater. But in this time, this time, I mean, Tony Scott made the right call, I think. So Slater was the right man for the job this time around. On the uh, alternate castings, this is just one. I don't know if there's any truth to it. But supposedly at one point, Keanu Reeves was actually... I don't, yeah, I don't think he. Not I don't think. I don't point. think he can hang with these actors. That's my opinion. <sighs> Not at this point in his career, no. He'd already done uh, Dangerous Liaisons. This is a Tarantino script, and we had touched on some things already. But Andrew, is there anything else that Tarantino's fingerprints being on this that you want to call attention to? Yeah, I, the cops. I love the way that he writes uh, Tom Sizemore and Chris Penn. Mm -hmm as cops that it shows in such a short amount of screen time the truth of the situation they are just after basically getting a bust they don't they know that the drug war at this point is futile uh, they're just doing something to try to advance their career even when things are getting you know difficult and the shootout 
instead of doing the thing that they're supposed to do and call the ambulance, the cop goes, well, you killed my, you know, my, my friend died. So instead of calling you an ambulance, I'm going to shoot you. And then Alabama shoots him. And I just, I love that aspect that it's, Hey, he had the chance, he had the chance to make the right choice given what he signed up for and what he's supposed to do. And he then made the wrong choice out of the emotion of that thin blue line and he got his ass capped for it. And that to me seems more Tarantino than anything else. I, I felt like their conversations when they're just listening to Elliot over the wire, that felt Tarantino-esque. Like you don't have to show us that behind the scenes where they're talking, they're like, Oh, I love this guy and how much they love how crazy Clarence is. But that's a, that seems like a very Tarantino enjoying the chaos moment. Yeah. You mentioned Michael Rappaport. And uh, right before all of the craziness at the end happens, he gets the call that he's actually gotten cast for TJ Hooker. <laughs> the great Tarantino part is when he says something like he's like, you're going to ask him a question. And then he goes, nothing. And he clearly was going to ask him a question. And you want to want to know exactly what that question is going to be. I always kind of assumed that the question was like, hey. I just got a job on TJ Hooker. Maybe I shouldn't be going with you guys to this, you know, to this Coke deal. That's what I was kind of assumed the question was. But, <laughs> like, it could be almost anything. I assumed it was going to be whatever Fenn was going to tell Ray in Rise of Skywalker. Uh, <laughs> more unsatisfying things. We'll get to that later. That's interesting, though. Uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino actually came into this. You know, Roger Aviary was writing a, a story called The Open Road. And he kind of had hit a stopping point and wasn't really working. So he kind of consulted uh, Quentin Tarantino to give it a shot. And Quentin came back to him with 500 pages. And, and that seems very Tarantino to just go to town on writing like that. And, <laughs> and it was a behemoth. And uh, it actually was two movies in one. It was Natural Born Killers and this movie here. And it's complicated. And I'm not really 100% sure how it worked out. But they, they wanted this big body of work to go out as one but then they realized this was too much they couldn't get it in a mini series format tv was a different game back at the day at that time and so it got split into two movies true romance and natural born killers now i actually came around to liking this movie and i hate natural born killers maybe not a popular opinion i don't know but i'm not ashamed i i, I hate natural born killers so i'm glad these got split yeah i'm with you there very interesting how this evolved but if you if you like tarantino movies this even though this isn't a tarantino movie it's a tony scott movie it's carried into continuity throughout tarantino's movies they reference alabama uh they reference one of the mobsters the the big mon mobster Lulu Boyle. yes this movie keeps coming through up throughout his work what i was looking for when i saw tarantino was like was there a foot scene but I guess since he didn't direct it, nope. uh, there was no foot scene. So Tony Scott may have cut it. The there was script. a foot scene. There was, was a foot there? scene. Patricia Arquette stabs James Gandolfini in the foot, right? With the corkscrew. Yeah, that, that's not a Tarantino foot, but yeah, yeah I got not you. Not the same. <laughs> not, not from dusk till dawn the same. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, like, I love from dusk till dawn. And if you want to talk horror movies anytime, I'm, I'll be down to do that one too, guys. Clearly, I enjoyed the writing of Tarantino a little bit more than Chad. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed that scene from Dust Till Dawn, and that's uh, <laughs> so, so, so my Hayek's a pretty lady. So now Tony Scott, as you mentioned, makes this movie and not Quentin Tarantino in, in the director's seat. 
Now, you've seen a number of Tony Scott's films, which, you know, for those who aren't familiar, includes Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Days of Thunder, The Last Boy Scout, Crimson Tide, The Fan, I Love Enemy of the State, that's a good one, uh, Man on Fire, Domino. Unfortunately, he dies prematurely and the movies stop, but he, he does have a pretty strong list, not as strong as his uh, brother Ridley Scott's movies, but <clears throat> um, still a pretty strong list in <clears throat> his own right. Oh, wait, what's uh, up? I argue that Top Gun stands up there with anything Ridley Scott did. Oh, that's... Oh, that's Gladiator, Alien, no, hot take. Blade Runner. That's too hot. Yeah, uh, I'm... Hey, Top Gun, uh, you haven't, you have not named a movie yet that I enjoy anywhere close to as much as I do Top Gun. I will give, I will, I will give you Alien as a, my respect for cinema that I can say, okay, they're in the same ballpark of greatness, but... Gladiator, heck no! I'll watch. Oh. I'll watch Top Gun twenty five times over Gladiator. That's my number one movie of all time. So we can fight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. You go with your sword, and I'll take my F fifteens, and we'll see who wins. All right. <laughs> the people will be entertained. I was gonna say I'm gonna go with the Xenomorphs on this one. So, um, <laughs> um, but uh, how does this affect the Tarantino script, knowing that it's going through Tony Scott for you, Andrew? Because this doesn't feel like a a Tarantino directed movie. Yes. I well, I, that's the thing is I feel like that Tony Scott is one part of what makes him a great director. And I don't, I, I do not know the history of all his movies and scripts. So this is just my feel, not, not knowledge here, but he takes a script and he, yes, has some of his own stylistic impulses. He wants the script writer to be his dance partner not his enemy. Like he wants it to be a partnership. And I feel like that he tried to, while keeping true to himself, be really true to the Tarantino-ness of the script. You know, he puts a lot of time into the dialogue because the dialogue is just amazing in this movie. You might not love the characters, but there's some witty stuff. Like the the scene in the elevator where he says, do I look like a big-titted blonde whose ass tastes like uh, French vanilla ice cream? Like, who can have the wittiness to say that in that moment when you're pulling a gun on somebody, right? He gives all of those Tarantino witticisms their opportunity to shine. And I think that that's what Tony Scott really does as a director. He has a good eye for what's working and he lets the kick ass kick ass on the dvd commentary he said that more than any other movie that he had done and this was looking back on it that he was trying to put image to the, the words on the scripts because he felt like this was a really well done screenplay so to your point andrew it varies according to tony but this is one that he felt was so tight and was such a good script there was he didn't want to change a lot he made some big changes namely the end is where he put his big stamp on it in tarantino's originally script clarence gets shot in the head and he's dead and alabama takes the money and goes to mexico on her own there's an alternate ending out there if you want to buy the uh advanced director's cut i hate this ending i think it's horrible it seems very tarantino of course I'm glad Tony Scott didn't do that. Tony Scott said, I came to love, I fell in love with these characters and I didn't want that. I just, my heart led me to do this. And Quentin got mad at him, I guess, and said that you're selling out to the Hollywood machine, giving it a happy ending. But I'm really glad he did because my, my general um, sentiments over this movie would be quite a bit different had Tarantino's original ending stood. See, that's funny for me because I don't think, like when I think about the ending, I essentially think about like just the shootout. You know what I mean? Like 
I realized that yes, for Christian Slater's character, for you know, for Clarence, it really matters to him whether or not he survived that, right? And it technically, since they had a kid, to, since in the you know the concept of the movie, they have a kid together, probably matters to the kid quite a bit too. But for me, it doesn't change what I've watched. What I've watched still is true romance, whether or not that bullet hits him in the eye or in the brain. Oh, in the Tarantino script, one other thing. She seems somewhat disconnected with it and said that he was a way out of her life and that she made it out in a somewhat satisfactory way with how everything went down, thus negating what they had. So I'm going to it gets worse. <laughs> so, mm. so no. OK, well, then maybe we'll see. That's why that, that's why I said uh, Tony Scott did what he needed. To, like, I'm I'm happy that that was not. I think if you're asking, do, do I think Tarantino should have directed that movie as opposed to just write it? No. Yeah. I think that Tony Scott brought what he needed to the table to guide this project. You know, he let Brad Pitt and Gary Oldman have some creative choices when I think most directors wouldn't that had his kind of gravitas. And Tarantino seemed seems a little more on, on the time of his director that he wants everything his way. Yeah. And furthermore, Tarantino is going to make some stylistic decisions. He's going to bring in his uh, nostalgia for things that he loves. Who knows? The Street Fighter movies would have had a larger presence in the style of the film. He goes bolder with his music decisions. And I, namely, Tony Scott's a far more restrained director in terms of being able to tell a story in a time-effective manner. I find one of my big criticisms with Quentin Tarantino is he's very verbose and he's quite indulgent. And these movies take a long time on stuff that seems pointless. And he just loves to just sit in the characters and hang out with them. And to Chad's point, the characters are usually not normal or relatable characters. And so this is my rub with him. But here, Tony Scott makes a lot of that pain go away from me. And I'm I'm not afraid to say that this is probably my favorite Tarantino effort, probably because he didn't direct it. Yeah, the, the word indulgent is what occurred to me is that's how his films usually feel is indulgent they linger on the dialogue and things that it may be interesting but it doesn't amount to a whole lot he just likes to let his characters choose scenery and so when tony scott got a hold of it i think it's pretty obvious there was some heavy editing done to get it down to a two-hour runtime yeah i thought it was interesting tony scott said that he made over 900 of these sketches where he storyboarded the sketches, but he also used them not just to plan out the movie and the scene. He used it each day to help people know how to work that day. And I just thought that was really cool. I guess perhaps the architect in me appreciates this, that he said that you can visually represent the day's work to people so much quicker, so much easier, and it made us move so much better. Because he said, we made this day the movie in about 65 days, and $12.5 million is not a lot of money to make a movie. He said... This is one of the cheapest movies he had made and he was calling in favors and the actors were taking lower prices because they believed in the script. He was having to do this on a small, small pocketbook at the same time. So to his credit, that worked out great. And I just thought that was a cool story of how he got everybody to work together. I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoy, say, Tony Scott so much more than Michael Bay is because even though they work much in the same genre, is he is so much more restrained. For I know I've mentioned Top Gun probably way too many times, but when a fireball happens in Top Gun, it matches the approximate size that I would expect of an airplane blowing up. When something happens in a Michael Bay movie, it's about seven times larger than what physics would probably dictate. 
if it's blown up, it's it's blown up. We, we don't need it seven times blown up. And I think that's where, you know, as that he does have restraint given the genre he's in, which so much times calls for lack of restraint. Now, now one thing he didn't hold it but much restraint on was that hotel scene that unfortunately took five days to film and oh man that was must that must have been some hard days of filming and Gandolfini was like a one of these ultra committed to the role people like he stayed at like the worst hotel he could find that didn't have a phone or anything they couldn't get a hold of him like he didn't shower you, you, you need to be clear which hotel scene because there's two important hotel scenes right yeah the Alabama hotel scene yeah yeah the Alabama Gan- Gandolfini yeah he said it was important to show the sacrifice that she makes in order to hold up through that but man whew it's hard. It's hard. Well, I think that the part of the one thing I guess I enjoy on the the foreshadowing nuance is when Drexel says, uh, pull, you know, pulls out Clarence's driver's license because, of course, he has his driver's license on him when he goes to, you know, confront the killer pimp. He goes, I bet Alabama's at this address. Bring that bitch back here. And that in that exact moment, I'm pretty sure particularly you guys as this being your first time watching it. You had that moment of what's he gonna do to her, right? But but maybe <laughs> like seriously, well, it's, well, you know, particularly Chad is having already like think about Chad's first couple of minutes, written by Quarantino, Tarantino, and get that back here, and, and like it's clearly that he's going to punish her, yeah. Right? Obviously, that doesn't happen there, but then it sets up this: what's going to happen? Is she going to have to be in an incredibly, you know, in a in a physical altercation? And whew, that scene. Aren't you kind of impressed that they only it only took five days to shoot? Ugh, it just must have been hard shooting. I don't know. I mean, it's hard for Patricia to get get me emotionally into that mode all that time. And you know, and I, I wanted to point out during some of the more emotional scenes, such as where she's confessing that she was hired, or or this scene. I don't like this, but Tony Scott said that it's an old British school of directing, but he used what was called a persuader. And that is, uh, he slapped her, Patricia, mm-hmm. as the actor, to get her into this emotional, fragile state. I don't approve of this, but uh, she she was a pro. She went along with it. She was asking for it later. He does have a lot of warmth when he speaks about her and their relationship together. She never broke character on set. She stayed in, she was Alabama from the time that she walked on the lot every day. And he appreciated that commitment to the role and to the character, but... Uh, yeah, you know, Tony Scott, I'm giving him a lot of praise here, but uh, don't don't slap your actresses. I'm not a big fan of slapping anybody, but I think that particularly as we've kind of learned in society, like, hey, be a little smarter. Yeah, definitely not slapping actresses. Really smart idea. That's I did not know that that I guess that's more so between him and her. I did not hear her side of the story. He says it in a jokingly like ha 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 kind of way. I'm like sitting there going like. Yeah, I don't think this is good. <laughs> I mean, I feel for James Gandolfini. I've been in that role, not not as extended, but you've been a mob enforcer before. Uh, no, no, I, no, no. He, no, he's been paid to hit women. Okay, I, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, sort of. I, I was playing a Nazi-ish character, and we literally dragged a girl on stage, and it was mine and another guy's job to beat her up on stage. And you just, I accidentally hit this girl during one of our performances but every single night we did it i i felt miserable and she was sweet and we were we were good friends but uh that was just a tough thing to do you hate yourself in the moment because you're just that's what you're doing and i can't imagine it was not nearly as graphic as james gandolfini i can't imagine 
what he went through to get through that scene because that's just an awful state to be in he uh he was so into character like he was he was telling her like come on actually hit me with the corkscrew in the foot i want to feel it so i can even you know patricia who's like so committed to the role was kind of like i'm not doing that (laughs) but i mean but she in turn was saying like actually pull my hair really like don't hold back like i need you to be a little more like it's got to be real and so she was she was egging him on as well so i mean just a lot of committed actors here so whereas christopher walken just walks in and he's christopher walken (laughs) (laughs) he's a great version of christopher walken though probably the most menacing i've seen him i think he was out hunting deer it was either that or hairspray (laughs) <laughs> seven psychopaths is a good version of Kristen, christopher walken too uh i, I like a blast from the past christopher walken i love that movie yes actually you did a pretty good job andrew of mentioning this was shot in detroit and, and uh california is there anything you want to uh, call out about this okay so uh i live in long beach and one of the great things about la is so many movies are shot here and tv shows and when something gets cult status what they do is they will do like tours of those scenes or something like that. And apparently there is actually like a true romance convention that occurs once a year here. And they go to these different venues that have takes, you know, that were shot of the movie where the movie was shot. So I just thought that was uh, something pretty neat that I didn't know about it until uh, preparing for this. One of my favorite location pieces was that Clarence's apartment had this billboard on the outside of it. And Tony was trying to find something unique because he he he's actually really jaded about like like love scenes and these kind of things. He's like, this stuff's been done to death. So how do I do it or whatever? And it's funny. He's does stuff that's quite inspired. Like he was kind of running down love scenes. And, you know, I thought his love scene was actually pretty good. And another good part of it was that billboard location. And he said he had had to shoot a cigarette ad i must be for overseas i don't know that they still had film cigarette ads but he had directed a cigarette ad there and he he had thought of it for like wouldn't this be an interesting thing like if you went up and sat up there on the aspect of the way the movie's shot and the way the interaction is between them in the love scenes i really appreciate that there's no like awkwardness but actually reminds me of the love scene in big mm. Yeah, I was hard on that one. <laughs> wow, Chad and I are not on No, you're not tonight. on point. I'm going to have your back but, on this one. Go on, but, Andrew. But that there's like, there is, there, it's not that awkward because he is a little bit of a dork in some ways, right? You could, you know, he didn't, like, he kind of flubbed it with the girl earlier in the scene. Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a nerd, which is not, that does not fly in 93. But, well, but he's a nerd, except he's not exactly. Like, he's, we consider, because you like comic books, that means you're a nerd. Well, he's not the guy getting, like, a 4.0 GPA in, like, comic books. He's the guy that probably had friends who were drug dealers. He doesn't really seem like he particularly into this stuff himself, but... You know, given what we see of his surroundings, he doesn't seem like he's the type of guy that he's completely clueless on some of rough and tumble stuff. But he's just spent most of his time being more involved in the beautiful media that he loves, whether it's Sonny Chiba movies, Elvis or Spider-Man comic books. And I think that the way they sh- that way that shot between the two of them, that there is I, I enjoy that love scene in the same way that I enjoyed Big's love scene without it being overly sexualized or overly or awkward. It, to me, both hit the similar right note. Yeah. 
And Chad's not on the page with you on that one. But <laughs> at the end of the day, it's an adult woman having sex with a thirteen-year-old. Doesn't matter the body. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I mean, as far as locations, uh, I'll throw this out there. I really enjoyed the fact that they went to an amusement park and rode a roller coaster to discuss a drug deal. Like that was something that just brought levity to the situation. It was a comedic moment without. You know, telling jokes, they're discussing a drug deal on a roller coaster. And poor Michael Rappaport, who doesn't like roller coasters, in, is in the back getting sick through half of the You'll show. notice he's not in the camera sh- frame for the roller coaster much of the time. <laughs> yeah, it, it reminds me of uh, Jay Baruchel. It is like that. Going to what you're saying there, like, that was another Tony Scott idea on the director commentary. He was just thinking about, like, nobody wants to just see them sit around a hotel anymore. What do we do? He saw an ad for Six Flags on there, and he said, wouldn't that be funny to just do a drug deal, like on a roller coaster? And Tony Scott really did make this movie a lot better. So, I mean, it's just small stuff like that. Or helping Jerry Oldman with the wardrobe department to just make the wig and the, that dreadlock and the, the, the leather cap and the leopard skin outfit that he has and, you know, the, the little glazed over eye, which I thought was an interesting thing going into wardrobe here. Uh, you know, that 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 frosted over eye that Oldman has is a piece of the same prop that he wore in Dracula. Mm. I, there's a lot of good detail in here. I really liked when they're in the diner and the camera's like panning around Christian's face and then it kind of zooms in on her face and it has that connection. And it's just one of those things that he uses lighting and camera angles pretty well it's 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 not necessarily the most beautiful cinematography necessarily but it draws you into the connection that they have and that's what's important i want to say that again i think the way they shot the uh drexel scene was very well done i love the way that they've got the tv going on and obviously it's part of their conversation but we can how we see everybody it looks correct for the environment it is he switches like he shoots a brothel, the way a brothel should be shot, and he shoots a amusement park the way an amusement park should be shot. He doesn't shoot the two things the same. Yeah, and that was an inspiring Detroit view outside of the city. He said that they did all the Detroit shooting in one day because they got there and it was unusually warm and they got some snow to work with, and they had to do a lot of those scenes in one day, so they had a heck of a day because he said the snow was all going to be gone, so we really had to like book it in Detroit. So another one of those things where he was... Just being very resourceful on that. Chad, is there anything? I feel like Andrew covered it as far as the special effects or the lighting. The the brothel was appropriately lit. From your experiences. <laughs> yes, from my from my many experiences. Andrew, was that accurately lit? So I don't have any, dis- I have no experience with how a brothel looks inside. <laughs> I think one of the things that was interesting in terms of the they wanted a real tattoo. So they actually put an ad in the paper and they had a woman with pale skin get a tattoo and she actually did it and she kept it for over two years until I guess the guy she was dating uh, didn't really like her having a clearance on her. So she had it removed then, but uh, that's a real tattoo happening in the movie because it had to look real to Tony Scott. <laughs> wow. That seems a bit much to me. Yeah, that's overkill. Yeah, like I appreciate the commitment stuff. Again, I'm not really down for slapping anybody, you know, but uh, it, it's I can at least mildly understand Patricia Arquette being like being OK with being slapped, but ne- being like, no, we have to find somebody to tattoo just so it looks real in this movie. Like, 
I guess I might have had a discussion with Tony Scott about that one. <laughs> now, let's talk about a bold piece of this movie, the soundtrack. Chad, what do you think about this soundtrack? <laughs> We're not supposed to go to negative town, but uh, here, here I go uh, at light speed. This is the worst Hans Zimmer score I think I've ever heard. <laughs> I really, really despise the theme of You're So Cool. I found the xylophones grating. You mentioned the love scene. I thought the... Chris Isaac. I thought that was really cheesy. I didn't appreciate it's that. It's the early 90s. I, I know. It's it's not a great period of, for music for anyone. Boo. Uh, uh, excuse boo. Boo. Boo this yes. man. Yes, I do. I do not like grunge. Shots fired. We are no longer best friends, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get back there. Oh, but um, yeah. Tread lightly if you go to the Aerosmith song because uh, I know Andrew likes them. <laughs> you know what? I like Aerosmith too, but that was an awful transition. Right after the Sicilian scene, we get the Aerosmith song. I'm like, what? This just felt disjointed and a mess, and I I condemn all of it. You don't know how to move. Like you don't understand how music moves us along. Yeah, I I've played music my entire life, and this was this was a disaster. So why don't you play counterpoint to Chad's point on this one, Andrew? I can understand criticism, okay? I enjoy the soundtrack, but it's not one of those where I would go, oh, this is clearly the best, like one of the top five best soundtracks of all time or something like that. I enjoy the xylophone. I have some appreciation for that. I can understand Chad's criticism a little bit, so I can't 100% be like, oh, it was the best thing ever, but I think it's good. I really enjoy it. I just wouldn't sit there and say like, oh, it should have definitely won like the Oscar that year. Whereas like if they had an Oscar for best scene, I would put up either Patricia Arquette, James Gandolfini scene or the Sicilian scene as best scene of the year for that year. And I think that both would have at least been nominated for the Oscar of best scene in that year. The music, good, but not quite up to the level of the acting or the script. Yeah. My first thing was I wanted this movie chocked full of Elvis songs, and I was really mad that it didn't. And then when I was watching the DVD commentary, they couldn't get Elvis. They couldn't show his face. They couldn't say that's uh, Elvis, which is why he's called Mentor in the credits, which is really strange. And they couldn't get Elvis's music. So even in the bar when they're talking about Elvis, that's Charlie Sexton on a song called Graceland. And it kind of sounds like it could be Elvis, but that's a bummer. Because what, yeah. what I want to do throughout this movie is have a ton of Elvis songs. And because it's so fitting for who he is. And they just couldn't do it. And that's a bummer. Well, the, the song that, that came out, I believe, two years before this, that would have been perfect, was uh, UB40. Yeah. Doing the cover of the Elvis. That would have been perfect. That would have fit perfectly. And because it is an Elvis song, but it's updated and it's at the time in which the movies, the characters are taking place. Like, you're telling me that Clarence Worley at least knows about that UB40 song. There's no way that the way he cares about media, that he doesn't know that a top 40 band has covered an Elvis song and it's now become like a top 10 hit. Yeah. You know, like he knows about that song. And I'm sure there are other examples because Elvis is like pretty amazing on the music he's produced is not I, i'm more of a beatles guy than an elvis guy but that's no knock on elvis you can enjoy both 
No, I thought the big bopper scene when they're in the, you know, Chantilly Lace, I thought that was this old retro song and it was so fun when he was calling Dick up and I, I thought that I'd like to see more of this music from that rockabilly part of the spectrum. I'm kind of with Chad. The, the xylophone didn't do it for me and there are moments of darkness in Detroit where that's such a strong juxtaposition when they're together and they're the warmth within this you know, not a, it's not portrayed as a nice city. I, I think that's cool. But when you drive up in front of Drexel's uh, brothel, I want something different there. But I mean, I, I did like the Billy Idol, the Soundgarden, the Aerosmith and the Shirelles, and there was some good stuff in there. But on, at the other hand, I just think I would like a consistent Elvis slash early sixties, late fifties. Give me that. Yeah, that, that would have helped, but obviously the rights couldn't be secured. And the opening was distracting to me. I'm like, this sounds like Elvis, but it's clearly not. And it was driving me nuts. Yeah. Well, it, he, he, yeah, Tony Scott said it was the next best thing I could do. I like that song too, he said. So, MVP of this movie, Andrew. It, it, to me, it's between two people it's between Tarantino for the writing and Patricia Arquette. I'm halfway with you, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> like, that character is a tough character to pull off and i'm not sure that like i know they're around that time there are tons of talented actresses and i'm not trying to knock any of them but the one thing i will say about tarantino is he likes to give what if he's gonna you know he likes to give all of his characters if they have something some meat to their character this is a disproportionately male movie right almost all the characters are dudes but here she is and the defining thing about her character is not that she's a prostitute. That is not what you come away from this movie thinking about. You come away from this movie thinking about her going, you look hilarious. Her like getting his attention, her standing up and he goes with the, with the screwdriver and she goes, okay, you want to take a shot? That's what you think about. I don't know, the shotgun scene where she's got the shotgun in her hands, the camera's looking up at her. I mean. <laughs> Thanks. I, I, Paul, proving my point. Like, she brings it so much that, I, but her character doesn't exist without the Tarantino script. So that's why I'm torn between those two. Chad, what about you? I'm going with Christopher Walken. He had such a small role, but I was honestly ready to give up on this film until Walken came on, and he kind of rescued it for me. His scenes were terrific. They're tense. They're threatening. And I couldn't take my eyes off of it. I can't. I, I, I'm totally ignoring that you said that you were ready to give up on this film. We're just pretending that that didn't happen. Snap the fingers. <laughs> <laughs> my MVP is going to go to Patricia Arquette as well. I thought she was really good. And I thought a lot of actresses would have failed to have brought the full range to this character. She does need to be sweet. But she also has to have a darkness. She has to be tender, but then there has to be some violence. And she does all of it so well. And she was so committed to the role. In the early scene when she's like pouring her heart out, she does seem genuinely fun. Like she is an absolute sweetheart. But then she's a survivor at the same time. And every step of this movie, I really enjoyed her performance. And I was a little bit frustrated with there's some parts when they first go out to California that she starts to just become arm candy. And it's not until the hotel beat-up scene that she really comes in back into her own. I was frustrated by that because she's such a strong, strong character. 
and then she fades out for a while and thank goodness it, she finishes strong and ultimately she's the one who picks up the gun and helps get Clarence out of there so I, I, strong female character I loved her in this I love Patricia Arquette as an actress best supporting actor Andrew I, I think there's a chance we all three have the same answer Gary Oldman nope <laughs> really wow I am shocked so you're going with the chameleon what about you Chad who, who, who are you going with I went with Pr- Patricia Arquette for all the reasons that you guys mentioned. Oh, I think she's a lead still. Yeah. yeah I'm with you. She's a lead. Well, I, I didn't choose her for the lead. So Discrimination. I want to, to throw it out. Yeah, she and, she and Slater are co-star in this movie. Okay. If you did if you did, if you you did did go next down, if you did go deeper in the bill, who would you go to? Michael Rappaport. Oh, I, okay. I like when he shows up in anything. And he plays a really great, naive, kind of, where are we going, friend? So I enjoyed Dick Ritchie. I loved his audition. Yes. <laughs> He's so bad at these things, but it's great. Yeah. I'm going with Gary Oldman as well, but uh, nods to Christopher Walken and James Gandolfini. I hated watching uh, James do his work, but uh, oof, can't get it out of my head. And Hopper, too. Gosh, man. I mean, this is the. I knew best support would be a, would be the hardest, though. So. But it's got. How is it not Gary Oldman? I mean, look, to me, this is the order I have it, is I have it Gary Oldman. Christopher Walken, Dennis Hopper, and those two are so close. And then... Uh, Gandolfini? It's South... No, I've got Donowitz, then Gandolfini. And that's... See, again, that's hard, right? That's how deep this list is. See, my my list is people that gave me moments of... Small moments of happiness. So that, that's reflective of the characters in my list. Okay, so Val Kilmer? <laughs> no. No. No, my initial thought was like, is this a, I, I was like, is this a bad Elvis impersonation? And then later on, I was like, nope, nope, it's actually supposed to be Elvis. Okay. Oh, that was good. That's harsh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Get Nick Cage. Okay. So who's your hidden gem, Andrew? Uh, my hidden gem in this, I think, is uh, Samuel Jackson. I, I love that little scene. Uh, I'm a big Samuel Jackson fan, as he seems to come up on almost every podcast I do with you guys, so I'm not... I'm guessing the listeners of your podcast are probably like, of course he picked Samuel L. Jackson. We talked about a Samuel L. Jackson uh, hidden gem in your Coming to America episode that you did with us before. So this is a reoccurring theme for you. (laughs) What can I say? He is an amazing actor. I have, you know, I like I, I was relatively young when he started out and I've been watching him in everything the whole way. I mentioned John Grisham earlier. Love him in Time to Kill. He's my guy. Okay. Chad, Hidden Jim. Saul Rubinick, who plays Lee Donowitz. I really yeah. liked his character. Yeah. I'm actually mostly familiar with him from Frasier. Uh, he was Daphne's fiance before Niles breaks up their wedding. So it was fun to see him in this role. role and He was great. <laughs> Colorful character. Yeah. He's just, what are you doing? When his bodyguard is like, I hate cops. He's like, no, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to go with the hidden gem of Anna Thompson. Uh, You might know her from The Crow as well, but she's the woman in the opening scene of the bar who Clarence is trying to uh, proposition and to going to see, yeah, trying to woo into going to three Kung Fu movies. And she's just like, I'm... It's not my idea of a good time. And she's so awkward with him. And all that connection that you said that he, Slater and Arquette have together, it is not there in this scene. And I love the juxtaposition for what's to come. So uh, she made me happy on that one. Good job on not working with him. 
it's it's very much a uh, Romeo and Juliet, right? Ophelia in the first place, and you know Shakespeare in love when they go. Well, you can't give it all for the this girl if you're going to tell convince everybody that that's the girl you're really in love with, right? I know you love this cast, Andrew, but we're going to make you do it. If you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their shoes, who's it going to be? You got to make me go last. You guys go first. Okay. Okay. This is unconventional. We usually give you the honor of going first, but Chad, why don't you go first then? Recast. I'm recasting Brad Pitt's Floyd, and I just feel like this was a huge waste of Brad Pitt. I actually didn't like the job he did. So I'm going to give it to someone who played a better stoner with Matthew McConaughey. Don't you condescend to me. Kill you. <laughs> so McConaughey's going to be in here. Uh, he's, a, he's a happier stoner, though, I feel like. Yeah, I've, I felt like Floyd should have been pretty happy. My recast is going to go to Bronson Pinchot as Elliot Blitzer. It's not a likable character, but I mean, on the other hand, I, I he has some decent comedic chops in this. But you know who I thought would uh, hold his weight better playing this nervous panicky character would be matthew broderick and uh their ages are pretty similar so broderick's three years younger i think he would do a great job of being nervous at handling all this and wearing a wire i can see that andrew recast i i believe i'm in time here with the ages I apologize if i'm not i might even be reaching down slightly with the school ties but it's hollywood they have makeup matt damon in for christian slater Wow, you went, you went for the big one right up front. Okay. I'm okay with that. If you're going to swing big, you swing big, right? Hey, I love Matt Damon, so I'd still watch that for sure. Can't you kind of see the Matt Damon that we get in, you know, Goodwill Hunting or School Ties? He's He's got this, like, I think that I'm the badass, but right now I'm working in a comic book store. All right. Now, best shot. Andrew, do you want to lead us off on this one? The look, like, when... Hopper comes in and Christopher Walken surrounded by all of the uh, mobsters that just like it just so like right then and there. And he's it's just so good. Yeah. The lighting on Hopper, like they zoom in so close to his face and the light that comes down on him really makes you feel like there's an ominous sense like he's on the stand and, you know, he's having this like life flashing before you kind of moment. On the other hand, uh, Walken's got this pale light behind him. There's a shadow on his face and kind of being the interrogator and the interrogatee. So good lighting in that scene. Great choice. Thank you. Chad. It's not necessarily a technically great shot, but the mobs, when they're casually walking up to the final hotel room where the standoff is going on, and they just walk up and they say, 211? Yeah, 211. And it's just slowly pulling out shotguns from their coats. And it's just focused on them being casual about murdering people i thought it was pretty cool that's an unexpected best shot but okay <laughs> yeah uh my favorite is going to be the billboard that i mentioned before we see an up low angle with a kind of a pale lighting on alabama's face and patricia arquette's nailing the emotional aspect of it and uh, i just thought this was a really creative shot the angle was good and it was a really interesting moment for some really on off the wall characters. I, I think you're really right about that. I think that is one of the real beauties of this movie is everything dealing with that billboard. I know you guys probably don't where you guys live. You probably don't. I don't live next to a billboard, but I've been in spots in downtown LA where I've been in like a friend's apartment and it's not quite like that, but I've been in buildings where if you have the right apartment, it is like that. You actually can walk out onto a billboard so it's 
I, I appreciate the truthfulness, even if the, you know, the likelihood of it happening is only for a small percentage of people. Chad, why don't you kick us off with best scene? The Sicilian scene with Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken. It was hands down the best bit of acting in the whole movie and by far the most interesting, even though it's entirely dialogue. It's just brilliant. Hopper played at your appeal as a uh, master of history, uh, masters in history uh, on that one, I guess, right? Uh, I mean, super racist, offensive history while antagonizing a mobster, sure. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, hold on. So here, here's the thing. I just want to jump in there. It's only racist is the way he's using the historical information. Correct. The historical he, information itself is has no ra racist attribute to it. It's simply the way that they are speaking to each other about facts is what makes it racist. All right. So the best scene for me is going to be the dinner scene where the true connection is established in the diet. Well, not dinner. I should say pie after the movies loved it i loved him asking her all these rapid questions and then her saying like one at a time and then he has it all ready to go which shows his quick wit the dialogue here is very sharp sharpest in the movie and like i said i feel warm and fuzzy in the first half an hour of this movie well 16 minutes or so 20 minutes or so there's a lot of darkness to come ahead but this kind of gives you the warmth and the connection with the characters like i said this is actually a healthy relationship and hollywood doesn't normally depict that and this felt so authentic it, it, i loved it so this is part of the reason why i had to disagree with the recasting issue it's the elevator scene where bronson pinchot goes i wish i wasn't here i wish somebody would come get me right now and he just kept repeating it <laughs> because he knows he's mike he knows the cops are listening in but the cops don't give a rat's ass about this. This isn't the big fish. So they need him to play it cool. And he is literally having his complete emotional breakdown. And Clarence is finally, the scene with Drexel, he was trying to be a badass. But he really didn't go into it smart, right? And so he's realized he's put himself in this situation. So he actually needs to be smart. So he's actually being smart. He's actually threatening to kill the guy who's a snitch. The thing you're kind of supposed to do in this situation if you're a drug dealer, right? <laughs> and Ronson Pinchot, quite frankly, gives a clear signal of, I wish I, w I wish somebody would just keep come get me. I wish somebody, who says that in that situation, right? Somebody who thinks somebody might be listening in. I just love that scene. I think the whole thing. And then when we get the cops listening in and they go, I love this clearance. He's a wild man. Oh. Change one thing, and only one thing, Andrew. Where Bronson Pinchot gets the Coke all spilled on him. Yeah, the slapsticky fun moment there. It's horrible. Oh, I had fun with that. Where he's like, just take this bag and like put it somewhere else so it's not in sight. We've just been pulled over. Like, no human being, nobody out in L.A., would do that i enjoyed it. it i had fun with that one yeah i i mean oh it's fun but it's not it's not actually realistic because trust me that, what do you do with your cocaine in that situation andrew i mean I, well i would probably stick it at my ass 
but you well, asked. You don't have time to do that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it just reminded me of the Chris, Chris Rock uh, sketch, which I think he actually regrets now uh, doing, but I'll, I'll cite part of it of how to not get beat up by the police. And it was like, don't upset your girl. <laughs> and that's exactly what Bronson did was he upset his girl and she threw the Coke in his face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chad, change one thing. I I need your voice for this, Russell. I need your talents, but uh, I've got a fever, and the only prescription is more Christopher Walken. <laughs> we had no resolution for Vincent Cacciotti. Like, what What the heck? Um, he's nowhere to be seen after the scene with uh, Clarence's dad. Do you want him to walk into the crime scene after it's all said and done and be like, oh, that's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. Just give me something to either know he's he's done with the whole thing. And I don't know. There was just no resolution there. As for my change, one thing, tone down the violence is my is my big one. I, I can understand that she's been put through a lot in the hotel without going through all of that. So although I do like the hairspray lighter Tip to Roger Moore, James Bond uh, from Live and Let Die. So that made me happy. But uh, as for the sheer brutality of everything you have to watch, I just I don't like watch women getting beat up by big men. It's it, it's hard. I thought you were going to pick soundtrack, Chad. <laughs> I, I want more Christopher Walken. There. <laughs> okay. Best quote of the movie, Andrew. You're so cool. So fitting. So fitting. Chad, best quote. If there's one thing this week has taught me, it's better to have a gun and not need it. Than to need a gun and not have it. That was my runner-up, but my number one is going to be uh, when Dick says to Clarence, "Do you have any idea how much coke you have here?" And Slater goes, "No, tell me." And he goes, "I don't know, but it's a whole lot." <laughs> <laughs> Just the sheer joy on his face, like it's a Christmas morning. Is it's it's so funny. There were a lot of quotes we couldn't say, so. <laughs> so many. Yeah. Well, above and okay, above above and below here, or sorry, let me say, uh, how many f bombs do you think are in this movie, Andrew? Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven f bombs. Oh, it's 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 in the two hundreds easily. Yeah, it is. Is it? Yeah, it's two hundred and thirty-four, man. Yeah. We've come full circle, Andrew, on a five-star scale with half-star intervals. What do you rate? True romance. It's a five-star movie for me because of the cast and the writing. You show this to somebody who's never seen it, whose name is not Chad, and they're going to have such a great time. Show it to my wife. It'll be worse than my writing. (laughs) Chad, you've tipped your hand here a little bit. What is your rating? Well, I say this while ducking, but two stars. Um... Wow, that is that's the all-time lowest for the show, I think. Oh no, I've I've given worse. <laughs> you were upset with me. I think I gave a one and a half star to something I can't remember now. This is why I need Fry with me when I when I do an episode. Oh, absolutely. This is a Brian Fry movie. He would at least give this a four, if not a five. But yeah. There you go. So Fry, since he doesn't give half stars, would give it five. But yeah, two stars. Didn't like it. Russ, you're 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 our pinnacle here. I feel like we started off slow with you, and we've now brought you around. Let's see that rating. Oh, I was actually probably closer to Chad's end of the spectrum the first time I watched it, and this is why I watch it more than once when possible. After studying it and appreciating it and the relationship they have, 
I'm going to give it a four. I, I kind of was leaning 3.5, but there's so much that's going well here. The gratuitous violence and the roughness of it, the, the machismo is is dripping off of this. And I, I think you could tone it down a little bit, which is not shocking to say for something Tarantino uh, has his fingers on. So I, I'm really glad Tony Scott made this movie and not Quentin. So I, I'll, I'll say that. And I wish more of the movies that Quentin had done had been made by Tony Scott. Uh, because <laughs> I, think, I think it turns out a lot better that way. There's so. a hot take. There's my hot take. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> That's the thing is I don't find this movie to have gratuitous violence. I find that the violence is very compartmentalized into slots oh, to man. where they occur. And it's part of the reason why I love the romance between them is because so many movies we, we watch where there are people who are in this realm of life, the romantic aspect causes violence between the female and the male partner, whichever direction. But we don't see any of that between them. They like the violence going on around them has nothing to do with how much they love each other and how they treat each other. So I don't I guess I don't find the violence to be nearly as gratuitous as you guys. All right, so it's time to pick a movie for next time. We have three great options here. The first option is Jurassic Park from 1993. A pragmatic paleontologist visiting an almost complete theme park is tasked with protecting a couple of kids after a power affair causes the park's cloned dinosaurs to run loose. Option number two, The Lost World Jurassic Park from 1997. A research team is sent to Jurassic Park Site B Island to study the dinosaurs there while an iGen team approaches with another agenda. And Jurassic Park 3 from 2001. A decidedly odd couple with ulterior motives convince Dr. Grant to go to Isle Sorna for a holiday, but an unexpected landing startles the island's new inhabitants. Due to a small audio blip, I will announce that Chad picked correctly and selected Jurassic Park for the next episode. So we will be doing 1993's Jurassic Park. Okay. Andrew, thanks for being on the show with us. We loved having you back, man. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, I really appreciated doing this. I, this is, to me, one of the most underrated great movies of all time. And even if you didn't love it as much as I loved it, I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss uh, great pieces of art. And that's what this is to me. Is a, It's a great piece of art. And we don't all have to love great pieces of art the same way, but discussing it's a lot of fun. And I really hope that the listeners really enjoy it as much as I do. Yeah. And to all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we want to invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, wherever you get your podcast. Those uh, reviews really help us out. They help others find the show. They help us know how we can make the show better. It doesn't take much work on your time. It's the number one thing you can do to help us out. Also, give us a like on Facebook. We love to engage with you and hear what you think about the movies. Follow us on Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com if you want to go into more depth or if you want to be on the show producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free so we invite you to support the show at our patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable any contribution is worth it and we will put it towards making the show better as always thank you for listening be good to each other and watch more movies chad you fool you fell victim to one of the classic blunders the most famous of which is never get involved in a land war in asia but only slightly less well-known is this. Never go against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> that was awesome, Chad. <laughs>